We are working our way through our ministry commitments, uh, the philosophy of ministry, the why we do what we do uh, biblically, um, and uh, today we come to our fourth ministry commitment. And just so that we're clear, uh, these ministry commitments flow directly out of what is commanded of us from Scripture. So Jesus Christ is the head of Grace Church of the Valley. He is the head pastor. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor. He dictates. He is the authority of our local assembly. And under His authority, dictated through His Word, and accompanied by the power of His Spirit, we have a group, a plurality of under-shepherds who care for the spiritual oversight of our flock. Those are called elders. We as elders have given time and attention to what the head pastor has said for our church family. And from that, identified these ten commitments that have to govern our activity as a local assembly because they are the authoritative word of our head, of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. Commitment number four is even more closely related to Jesus himself than maybe some of our other commitments who come from Jesus' delegates, the apostolic commands. But this particular command comes from our Lord's mouth at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Because today, commitment number four is that of making disciples both locally and globally. And the comment underneath of that commitment says that the church, our church, Grace Church, every church of Jesus Christ should foster disciple making within its own community through the relational witness of the body as well as in the world through church planting and missions, both individually and corporately, we will purposefully and aggressively pursue evangelism. Now, this particular commitment is not new to our focus, primarily because we just came to the conclusion of our study of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, we find this command given to us as God's people. We are to be about making disciples for Jesus Christ, teaching those disciples, to observe all that He has commanded and baptizing them in public confession in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we are active in this task, and as we are active in the mission to which we have been called, we have the presence of Christ with us until the end of this age. Those are the comforting closing words of Matthew chapter 28, verses 16-20. through 20. We've also just completed in our Adult Bible Fellowship time a training session for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, for disciple-making at the earliest point, which is evangelism, mission. Two Ways to Live has been a tremendous course. In fact, if you haven't been with us for that, uh, we're going to have these tracks, which are synopsis of our study. Six cells that outline the gospel content for you to use as a resource as you communicate and aggressively pursue disciple-making in your life. These will be available at the Hub next week. And uh, feel free to stop and pick one of those up as a resource for you. Furthermore, this week we're going to be engaged in disciple-making activity in a very aggressive and a very focused, unique way because of the various ministry outlets that we've already talked about. Not only that, but on a consistent basis, discipleship is a key part of our church's life. Many of you, if not most of you, are involved in some smaller setting with other believers for the purpose of calling one another to observe all that has been commanded of you. Discipling each other. Having influence over one another. Whether it be in T2 or in grace groups or Bible study groups or informal times of fellowship. Many, if not All of us are engaged in some form of ongoing discipleship. Disciple-making from us and disciple-making for us. All of us who are disciples are in the process of being made more like our Savior as disciples and must be involved in calling others to the same. Local and global evangelism are a regular part of life here. We bring it up a lot. We financially and prayerfully and with fellowship support Lucio Stanishi in Perugia, Italy. 
We support financially and prayerfully and with fellowship Josiah Grauman and his family as they serve Christ in the Spanish community training pastors in L.A. And we support with prayer and financial backing and fellowship Shannon Hurley, who is ministering for the gospel through sufficiency of Scripture ministries in Uganda, Africa. Those three, and no doubt, I trust, there will be many, many more over the lifespan of our church family as the Lord allows, represent our commitment to global mission, to taking the good news of Jesus Christ globally. There's consistent call for us as we gather on the Lord's Day to leave this meeting as missionaries. We gather to be equipped. We scatter for the purpose of the mission. We encourage one another. We sit under together the Word of God and the preaching of God's Word. We worship together. We're reminded together at the Lord's table. We give together for the purpose of extending the kingdom work. And then we scatter away from each other to do that kingdom work. So this fourth commitment, in some ways, seems to be one of the most obvious in our thinking as a church family. So what is the compelling reason for spending the next few moments talking about it? If we just studied Matthew chapter 28 a few weeks ago, why come back to another study of our commitment to making disciples both locally and globally? Well, there's one question that plagues me when it comes to the issue of disciple making. And I mean, on a personal level, it plagues my heart. And I, I'm confident that you as well at times face this question. What is the biblical motivation to be consistently active in disciple-making? What is the biblical, the, the godly, the spiritual motivation to be consistently active in disciple-making? The reason that question plagues me is because of inconsistent activity in disciple-making. I find, like you find, if we have fellowship in this particular struggle, that there is an ebb and flow. There is a coming and a going to my commitment and activity in disciple-making. There are times when my heart is drawn deeply to the activity of the mission that I've been called to. And there are times when it seems distant and cold and I feel disconnected from the mission of my Savior for which I've been left on the earth. There is one activity as Christians that we will not partake of in heaven. Spiritual activity. Sin will be removed. But we will not evangelize. We will not make disciples. That will be done with. That's why we're here. We are the body of Christ for the purpose of the mission of Christ. Until the return of Christ. To gather us to be with Christ. So what is it? that the Bible outlines as the motivation, the defining, the first, if you will, motivation, the highest motivation for taking up the difficult task of making disciples. Now, as I examine my own heart, I find many bad or insufficient motives for disciple-making. And perhaps you, like me, engage in evangelism with unbelievers, engage in discipleship with other believers, But while engaged in those activities which are the right things to be doing, there's concern that there isn't the right reason for doing it on the inside. I outline just three of the common motives that have been a part of my life as a follower of Christ and one called to disciple-making. One is guilt-driven disciple-making usually compelled by some discussion or some sermon or some book that reminds my conscience that this is a normal activity of the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to be a disciple maker, to be one who is engaged in evangelism and ongoing discipleship in the lives of Christians. And with that newfound information and the renewed awareness of my conscience, 
I have a guilty sense that I must, I must be engaged in this activity. The deficiency is, is when the guilt is removed, when the guilt subsides, when my conscience is not alarming me again, I find I slip back into indifference for the cause of disciple-making and the mission of Christ. I also have experienced duty-driven disciple-making. Similar to the guilt-driven disciple-making, this focuses on me and my accomplishing my duty, getting it done, checking the box. In some ways, I was raised to be a duty-driven disciple-maker. During the earliest years of my ministry training in my undergraduate studies, I had to recount seven evangelistic experiences every week. I had to write them out in a report and turn them in, and I got a grade for them. If I had six, I got a, a lesser grade than if I had seven. I had to record what the decisions were that came from those evangelistic encounters. And while I don't doubt the intent of that was accountability and help for me, it fostered a legalistic, duty-driven disciple-making that wanted to get it off of my chest, to get it done with. I did my duty. Now I'm done with my duty for this week. I mean, to get number seven sometimes meant literally going out into town, walking up to the first person that I saw and saying, they don't know they're number seven. I know they're number seven. And I say to them, do you know where you will spend eternity? We haven't even introduced each other. We don't have any point of reference. I'm just getting number seven done. And when they rejected me because they thought I was strange, wondered what in the world this discussion was all about, I had the relief of my duty being done. Maybe you have had visitation on a certain night of the week or you have gone door to door and and a number of doors was, was some kind of duty. Perhaps you've even been made aware of the need for evangelism and disciple making within your sphere of influence, but duty has been the driving demand. Well, brothers and sisters, when the duty is no longer on us, we find our motivation is gone as well for this great mission of Christ. I've also been motivated at times by compassion for the people who were receiving the message of Christ. Compassion because of the the reality of hell and the deep sense of what was coming in the impending judgment of God upon these people. And these are appropriate responses as we engage with lost and sinful people. But when the compassion is low, the motivation is gone. When I am angered by the sin of people around me, I find no necessity within me, no motivation within me to share Christ's message of hope in the gospel with these people. If compassion is the first motivation, when we lack compassion, we will be anything but active in the mission to which we've been called. So whether it be guilt or duty or compassion or some other some other motivation, my quest has been to study and to examine what is first, what is it that creates in me and is intended to create in me a driving, active, consistent, disciple-making life as a follower of Christ. Everything that rests in me or in my response ebbs and flows. It comes and it goes. Sometimes I feel really guilty. Sometimes I feel really dutiful and sometimes I feel very compassionate and my wife would say the sometimes on the compassionate part is 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 a lot less than the sometimes on the duty part but sometimes I feel those but I believe the New Testament gives us an immovable motivation that never ebbs and flows it never comes and goes it's never gone because this first motivation is constant it's unchanging It never alters. This first motivation is what we find outlined for us in Romans chapter 11 in verse number 33 
through chapter 12 and verse number 2. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. In what will, for many of you, will be a familiar portion of your Bible. I trust we will find a realignment to the motivation for being about the mission of disciple making. We have no choice but to be committed to disciple making. We are commanded by the head to be about this activity. And yet we seek a constant motivation to be active, consistently active in disciple making. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul, sent from the Lord himself, defines for us the biblical motivation for disciple making in every member of the body of Christ. Now, to be clear, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and verse 1 in particular, is not talking immediately about disciple making, but it is talking about the life of the believer given to the activities of the head. The call of Christ upon the life of the believer includes, if not accentuates, the mission to disciple making. So we must, we must recognize that worship is the great biblical motivation for disciple making. God Himself is the great motivator. Worship is the basis of the strong desire and the overcoming courage to engage in disciple making. If we are afraid to speak, worship is the constant motivation that will never fail us. If we are afraid of consequences from communication in disciple making, worship God Himself is the immovable motivation that will overcome this fear. If we are cold and disconnected and lacking compassion for the lost, if we engage with people on a daily basis that don't know Christ, and yet we find no compelling feeling for them, God Himself, worship and an understanding of who He is and what He has accomplished, will be the immovable motivation that overcomes such disengagement from our mission. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which is, I believe, one of, if not the best book on the mission of the church, Let the Nations Be Glad, says missions exist because worship doesn't. The mission or missions is not the end for the church. Worship is the end for the church. And the church evangelizes because worship doesn't exist in those who are apart from Christ. So worship is the goal of missions and it is the fuel for the mission. It both motivates and it is the end for which we engage in disciple making. Disciple making is calling others to be worshipers of the one true God who created them, who sustains them, who is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Because apart from the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of hope through Christ, they will never worship Him and bring glory and praise as they ought. Their knee will be pushed down. They will confess Him as Lord. But they will spend an eternity apart from the glorious worship around the throne. Now, in this text, which I'll read in just a moment, we're going to do something that we don't normally do in our study of Scripture. We're going to go backwards this morning. We're going to start with the last verse, and we're going to move backwards in our text, because I think that will help establish for us the validity of the claim that worship is the first motivation. God Himself is the motivating anchor for us in active, consistent disciple-making as a people of God. So let's read the text, and then we'll begin at the end, and we'll work backwards through the text to see these truths from Paul's words to us under the superintention of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 33 of chapter 11, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, His decisions, and how inscrutable His ways, untraceable. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He may be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may know, or you may discern, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, help us now as we study. May your Spirit give power to the proclamation, clarity, conviction, May there be reception. May there be transformation. Progressive in those who have new hearts. Saving for those who are deceived or unbelieving. Do what only you can do through this time, we ask. In the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus. Amen. So then when we ask the great question, what is the biblical motivation for active, for consistent activity in disciple-making? The answer is, number one, worship is our first motivation. Now, in the context here, if you're unfamiliar, and we're going to be studying Romans uh, beginning in September, we'll start our study of the letter of Romans. And um, I don't know when we will get to chapter 11 and verse 33, but I'm confident we will mostly forget what we talk about this morning. Because it'll take us a while. So let me bring you up to speed just so that we know where we are in this. Paul is ending his doctrinal section of this letter. Chapter 1 through chapter 11 is the doctrinal um, core, really, of Paul's entire ministry. This is the, the manifesto of theology from the Apostle Paul. The righteousness of Christ is displayed in chapters 1 through 11. In chapter 12, he turns like he does in most of his letters to the implications or the application of the doctrine to the life of the people who are reading it. But uniquely here in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been focused on the saving work of God, in particular in relationship to the Jewish nation. The nation of Israel that has rejected their Messiah, Paul has focused on their salvation. He has spoken in chapter 9 of God's sovereignty in every salvation, whether Jew or Gentile. Some of the most glorious and difficult verses in our Bible are found in Romans chapter 9. In chapter 10, Paul has focused on the human means and responsibility in the gospel message and in the gospel work that God does, reminding us that none will come to faith apart from hearing and none will hear unless someone preaches, proclaims the good news of Christ. And in chapter 11, he has He has finished up this doctrinal manifesto with the sure hope of a future restoration for Israel through Christ. Israel will be restored. A national component will believe. They will be brought back to the prominence for which God ordained in their election. That they would be the carriers of the promise. That they would be the keepers of the covenants. That they would be the ones who proclaimed and lived in the steadfast love of Yahweh. This will happen. It will come back. The Gentiles have been grafted in. The church has been formed. And yet Israel is not finished. And after all of that, Paul focused on the gospel and the work of God in the gospel, launches into what we call a doxology in verse number 33. It is a song, it's a poem of glory to God. That brings us to verse number 1 of chapter 12, and we begin to work backwards. Here we find the clue that leads us to the understanding that worship is behind, or is the motivator, the first motivation, for being about the kingdom mission of disciple-making. Paul says in these verses... I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's the basis of this activity, God's mercy and grace, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, 
Paul says, I appeal to you, Roman believers, and I appeal to you, Grace Church of the Valley, by the Spirit's preservation of this letter for us in the Scripture. To be giving your life away in worship by the mercy of God for the purpose of God. To be offering yourself as a daily offering of worship. But Paul didn't begin his letter in verse number 1 of chapter 12. He didn't even begin with this call to nonconformity to the world system in which we live, but a transformed mind through the renewing, the renewing work of the Scripture. He didn't begin there, and we obviously know that because we have chapter 11, but we also know that because we have a word in chapter 1, or chapter 12 and verse 1, that leads us to understand Paul's connection. The key word in your Bible study is therefore. I appeal to you, therefore. I urge you to give your life for the kingdom mission to be living in the world, but not of the world, to be renewed in your mind, transformed in your life, not conformed to the world system in which you live. I appeal to you to this. I call you to this, Paul says. Therefore. Therefore, I make this call. So what we find in verse number 1 of chapter 12 is based upon the validity of chapter 11 and verse 36. The call to this sacrificial life, this kingdom living, this mission that we are set upon as Christ's people, this appealing to us to be engaged in giving our lives away is entirely anchored upon the truthfulness of verse 36 and really the truthfulness of chapter 1 to chapter 11. God really is the originator of all that exists. He's the source of all that is And the end for which all exists is really His glory. That's why in verse number 36 we find for from God and through God and to God are all things to Him be glory forever. Truth. Amen. Truth. Therefore, give your life away for this cause. The therefore is directly connected to the truthfulness of verse 36. So we move backwards in our study. Left without this motivating factor that God is the great end for which we exist. And worship is the great task for which we were created. We will find our motivation ebbing and flowing and insufficient. God is Himself the beginning the middle, and the end of our mission. Disciple-making is the mission of every believer because every believer is assumed to be in awe of God, consumed by the supremacy of God, the grace of God, the miracle of salvation from God. This is to be the standard fare for believers. We are worshipers, therefore we take the message of hope in Christ for the praise of His glorious grace to all who don't know Him. So it it begs the question, are we actually what the New Testament assumes of us? Are we consumed with God? Do we know Him? Are we marked by our awe of Him and wonder at His work? Or do we read Paul's words and say, wow, how poetic, I would have never thought of that. These are foreign concepts. I am not here this morning in awe of who God is. I did not sing for you are holy with a deepening awareness of what that means in my knowledge and understanding of God. You might want to jot this passage down as a cross-reference. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9-11. through God says there repeatedly, it was for my name's sake. Israel. It's for my praise, for my glory. It's too good not to read it. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse number 9 says this. You can listen as I read this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. 
that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name should how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's greatest end, his highest purpose is to bring glory to his own name. Because there is no name above him for which it is rightful to bring glory. He is His own greatest end. And therefore, when we are seeking motivation to be about the kingdom purpose for which we have been redeemed, we find our greatest end in God Himself and in the worship and glory of His great name. Piper goes on to say, in Let the Nations Be Glad, passion for God in worship precedes the offering of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You and I cannot be active and consistent in disciple making, motivated by God, unless we are cherishing God, knowing God, focused on God, in awe of God, in wonder at who He is and what He's accomplished. As I look around the room and as you look back at me, you know other things that we are passionate about. There are other things that we commend to each other. If you come to our home and we have a meal on the back patio, my grill cover will commend the Ohio State University to you. Let's not talk about it now. But it will commend it to you. Why? Because I cherish, I cherish the Ohio State University. If you spend any time with any number of you, you will find that you do not cherish the Ohio State University. You cherish one Cal State Fresno. You are passionate about it, so you commend it. You know information and you love the information that you know so you speak freely about it. You are passionate about what you cherish. And if we are being motivated and consistently active in disciple making, it will be because we know and love and cherish the God of whom we speak. Why are we so quiet about God and about His grace through Christ? I fear we are quiet because we do not know Him and cherish Him. And love Him as we should. Number two, worship is the first priority. And number two, we find as we move backwards that worship exists because revelation exists. Paul was able to say, To God be glory forever because of what God had revealed of Himself to Paul. Paul was able to appeal to the brothers based upon the validity that for him and through him and to him are all things. Because God had made known himself. When Paul was recounting and teaching the Roman believers about the righteousness of God and the work of the gospel through Christ, and as he talked about Israel's restoration, the sovereignty of God and the proclamation of the message, He was reminded of what God had revealed about Himself that resulted in worship. So in other words, there's a chain. If we are to be motivated in disciple-making and in the kingdom mission, it will be because we worship. If we are consumed with who God is, if we are seeing Him clearly, we will not be able to go without speaking of Him and calling others to worship Him. But... Our worship of God is dependent upon our knowledge of Him. And our knowledge of Him is directly connected to His revelation of Himself. I struggle in inconsistency in discipleship and in disciple making. That's a worship issue. And my worship is uninformed because I am not constantly and progressively aware of the revelation. Here's what the revelation looks like in this text. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are His judgments. His decisions are unsearchable. The depth at which He thinks and works is, is, is you cannot touch the bottom. You can mine and mine and mine. You can drill and drill and drill. And you'll never hit the bottom of the judgments of God in His work of salvation. His wisdom, His knowledge go beyond comprehension. And His ways, His activities, His steps, if you will, His path is inscrutable. I'm sure that's a word that we don't often use. Untraceable. You could never trace the activity of God because it is so far beyond our comprehension. So what is it that fuels the worship for Paul that then is the basis of his appeal to being living sacrifices for the kingdom? What is it that Paul knows about God that launches him into praise? And then is the basis of him calling for us to give our lives away for this great God. What he knows about God, get ready, is that God is beyond knowing. What little bit he's tasted of the wisdom and knowledge of God leaves him recognizing that the judgments are unsearchable and the ways are untraceable. God is so far beyond him. This is what Paul is aware of. God is holy. He is other than us. He is apart from us. He's separate from me. He's above me. He's greater than me. He is beyond my comprehension. When Paul sees this, he cannot help but break into this worship song. The unknowable, unsearchable, inexhaustible, infinite glories of God are the meditation of Paul and they are the basis of his call for sacrifice. Worship fuels the mission. Notice the questions. There's three questions that Paul asks that help him define. They're in, they're in direct connection to verse 33. He asks three questions to explain what he means by unsearchable and inscrutable. The holiness of God. The otherness of God. Explaining with the word for, for. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Question number one, who knows the mind of the Lord? No one apart from Him revealing His mind to them. There is no one who in and of themselves has the capacity and the ability and the desire to know the mind of the Lord. Or, who has been His counselor? Have you ever considered that God has never thought of anything for the first time? It's a headache waiting to happen. I get it. I understand. No one has given him a good idea. No one has told him anything that he already didn't know infinitely. We have never, there is no one who has ever communicated and God said that is wise counsel. His counsel is, is infinite and without error. His mind is flawless and infinite in its capacity. God-centered worship is the natural way to worship God when we see Him for who He truly is. The third question, or who has given a gift to Him? Oh, this is critical, folks. Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Who is God indebted to? No one. There has never been an activity that was some gift to Him that He he feels compelled then. He's somehow locked into an agreement. All agreements with God are on His terms. He alone gives. He never receives because He's deficient. There's nothing given to God that He doesn't already possess. He doesn't need and He has never needed anything. Everything that we give is because He has brought us to Himself. Not because He is deficient for what we offer. These are powerful, powerful questions. What we know of our God convinces us that He cannot be fully known. We're reminded 
with every lesson we learn about God that he has never learned a lesson. If we're thinking thoughts about him now that we've not thought before, let it be a reminder that he's never thought of something that he didn't think of before. He's never been given anything. Everything flows from him. To say that God is self-existent is too little of a description. God is not only self-sufficient and self-existing without the energy or source of anyone else. He is the source and energy for everyone else. You see, Paul is so gripped by the awareness of who God is as God has revealed himself. He is so overcome with the otherness of God beyond us as creator, as our as our holy God and judge. That he cannot help but say what he says in verse number 36. There's only one conclusion from God. That is, everything originates in him because he alone has never originated. No one has made him. He has always been and always will be. Therefore, everything is from him. And through Him, He is the sustaining source for all that exists. We remember Paul's words recounting this to Jesus Christ Himself in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-23. God made all that is, is the basis or the beginning for everything else, and through Him sustains everything that exists. And therefore, the last statement in verse 36, and to Him are all things. All that He has made, all that He sustains, are for Him. There is one great cause for which we exist, and it is God Himself. And we have had our eyes open to the glorious truth that God has made way for us as rebel sinners to be about our greatest purpose. He has made way for us to be in praise and worship and adoration and glory to His name. He did it in the most mysterious way. His Son came, took on human flesh, became like us as a man, yet without sin, living in perfect obedience to the law of God, filling up what was required by God's righteous standard, and then went to a cross, obedient to His Father, and died there in the place of sinners, taking the wrath that God reserved for us and taking it upon Himself. He's cursed by the Father. Three days later, He raises from the dead. He's raised from the dead in victory over life, victory over death, victory over sin. He is the victorious reigning King. This is the way that God has ordained for sinful humanity in repentance, in turning away from their own way, and faith, believing what they cannot see about Jesus. This is the way the exchange happens and we are brought into a relationship with God. So the assumption is right that we would be worshipers of the first kind. That we would be passionate about this message. That we would be consumed with proclaiming this message. Because God is worthy of worship. And I have been made a worshiper. And all others who have not been made worshipers, I seek to see them worship God. Because He is worthy. So, we're left with this wonder and awe. And right in the midst of this wonder and awe from the Apostle Paul, lies the motivation for disciple-making sacrifice of our lives. No one else is worthy of worship. That means that everyone who is not worshiping God through His Son, Jesus, is committing treason against their Creator King and living in idolatry in rejection of Christ. All must be told of His glory, exposed to His glorious Son, And they must bow in glorious, crushing humility before Him, receiving grace upon grace. This is the kingdom mission. And the one motivation that never ebbs and flows is worship in the revelation of who God is. What is the biblical and spiritual godly motivation for taking up the difficult task of discipleship? 
God is that motivation. Unable to see Him clearly, you will lack motivation to be about His work. See Him incorrectly, you will be in danger of twisting His work. So then it's obvious. Worship fuels disciple-making and it's the end for which disciple-making exists. We're motivated by worship to speak the gospel to others so that they might worship God as well because He is worthy of the worship and exclusively worthy of the worship. We're motivated by worship to train, teach, disciple each other and other believers to observe all that the Son of God calls us to be as His body on earth because He's worthy of such worship and devotion. So a few thoughts for us as we go. Will you be passionate as a follower of Christ? Will you be passionate in seeking to know God in such a way as to be immovably motivated by His glory for His mission? Will you give yourself to knowing Him in such a way that the consuming passion of your life is based upon the revelation of who God is so that you then are active and faithful in the mission? Will you be disciple-makers locally? Are you? Many of you, I know, are testimonies and encouragement and exhortations to me with your life because you are local missionaries. Will we take up the charge to be local missionaries, hearts motivated by God Himself and the glory of His name, the glory of His Son and His work? Talking to strangers, talking to friends, talking to family members, talking to enemies, talking to neighbors, talking across cultural lines, talking across community lines. We're a multi-community assembly. VBS, workers, be disciple makers this week. Camp Seven Oaks, servant staff, disciple making. River of Life, disciple-making. Resolve, disciple-making. This is our calling. This is our assumed position as disciples to be about the mission of our Savior. Will you go and take the mission globally? Will you leave here and go? To an unreached people group, will you take up this charge motivated by worship and say, I will give my life as a living sacrifice and I will go for the gospel? This is an appropriate and normal question to ask God, do you want me to go for your gospel message to somewhere else for another people? If even the thought of asking the question, makes you nervous, you probably need to ask the question. If staying, will we be praying and supporting, giving, encouraging the work of others who are going? Global missionaries are not superhuman people. They're not a special breed. They are people that God has called, gifted, and supplied with the ability to take his message elsewhere. And they are so consumed with who he is as he's revealed himself through his word and through his son that they can do nothing but take that message. So let's pray for them, support them, encourage them. Let's be them if that is you this morning. Finally, because of the cultural connection, dads, fathers, grandpas, great-grandpas, Men, will you be disciple-makers locally? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7 says that it is the men. It implies the men are the ones who speak to their children. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 3 doesn't imply. It commands that fathers are the epicenter of disciple-making locally as in, in their house and certainly as a pattern of their life. Say, boy, I don't know that I have 
worship and adoration that would lead to passionate disciple-making of others. We want to be a part of that. That's why we're here. We're being equipped this morning. This is another layer of, of God's work and, and our Master's work in our lives, informing our conscience, renewing our minds, showing us a part of Himself that perhaps we've been forgetful of. We want to be a part of that on an ongoing basis. Gospel meditation. The glory of God in front of our faces. Focusing our attention on truths from this Word so that men, fathers, grandfathers, we stand at the front as disciple-makers calling others to worship the only one who is worthy of worship and training those who worship to be faithful in their walk of faith with Christ. Worship is the biblical motivation for application of our local church commitment to make disciples. What is the biblical motive to be consistently and actively involved in disciple-making? It's worship of God Himself. This is our calling. This is our assumed position before God. Let's be faithful, dependent upon His Spirit, seeking mercy and grace. Let's lay our lives before Him as worshipers who are then active in their worship, taking the message of good news to others. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this truth. Thank You for the Apostles' clear connection between His appeal for obedience and sacrifice and the glorious worship of Your name that results from seeing You clearly. Help us not to merely say with our mouths that we know great things about You, while our lives profess that we do not know You. Guard us from deception. Convict us where needed. Change us in every way to be more like Your Son, to be more consumed with Your glory, so that we are more obedient to Your call upon us as Your people. And use us in the valley to raise up new worshipers for You and more mature worshipers of Your great name. And use us around the world to take this Gospel message, we pray. We pray to You, our Father, because You alone are capable of accomplishing these things. And You alone are worthy of such worship and adoration. So we pray in the name of our Son who has brought us to You and through whom we come to You, we pray in His name.